0: Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock, to country, and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather.
1: Tonight on The Big Interview, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, their tumultuous lives and signatures sound.
2: What have I got
1: to I'm a journalist, obviously, and I'm always interested in getting this story straight. Can we settle on how Crosby, Stills, and Nash started? No. no. There's no agreement? No. no. Three sensational singers who were there at Woodstock. Crosby, Stills, and Nash on The Big Interview. They were three singers who already had successful careers. David Crosby as part of the influential 60s rock band The Birds, Stephen Stills in Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash in the legendary British rock group The Hollies. But in Los Angeles in the summer of 1968, Crosby, Stills, and Nash got together for the first time, forming one of the first supergroups. And from the infectious strains of their first hit single, Marrakesh Express, it was magic. The harmony among the three Express, soon became legend and inspired its own name, the California Sound. But their music quickly changed with the times. In the summer of 1968, America was in turmoil. Vietnam was raging, anti-war sentiment was on the rise. Long Time Gone was written in response to the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Social commentary and criticism became a key element in much of the group's songwriting. By the following summer, Crosby, Stills, and Nash had added Neil Young and his distinctive voice. The group played Woodstock. It was only their second live performance together, but it became a seminal moment in the history of rock and roll.
2: Sometimes it hurts so bad.
1: Even though their voices blended seamlessly when they sang offstage, one band member's voice seemed to draw the most attention, guitarist and songwriter David Crosby. In preparing for this interview, I was told that he's the unpredictable one. Why would they say that?
3: Uh, I have a reputation for being loony and uh, irreverent and uh, experimental, and it's, you know, I, I think it's a fair description. I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute it at all.
1: Well, you use the word experimental. Sometimes being experimental can get you into trouble.
3: It has, and sometimes it's gotten me into areas, you know, that I would not otherwise have, have made it to. For the human race, it's, it's been the same way. It's been a good thing and a bad thing. For me, experimenting with drugs wound up terribly, uh, for me, experimenting with musical forms wound up being the biggest open door that I hit in my musical growth, you know. So I think in in the long run it's a quality that the human race really needs and, and should
1: nurture. Well, let's talk about the negative side of it. You said there certainly is a positive side, experimenting with new musical forms. But on the bad side, let's talk about the highlights or lowlights, if you will. <laughs> how, first of all, how did it start?
3: Well, we were a bunch of people trying to blow ourselves loose from the 50s, mm-hmm. from Pat Boone and White Bucks, you know, from Father Knows Best. That was an age we wanted to leave behind, and maybe rightly so. So when the idea of smoking a joint, you know, came along, we thought, wow, this, hey, whew, this is pretty wonderful. Uh, and we embraced it. We thought, wow, this is going to give us all kinds of wild new ideas. And Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, maybe the ideas would have come anyway, but we loved it. Then we encountered hard drugs, which of course, as you know, although the government doesn't seem to know it, are completely different, pure poison. And uh, they pretty much destroyed my life over a period of time, or I destroyed my life with their help. And um, that's where experimenting can get you in a lot of trouble. It's like experimenting when you're trying to climb up half-dome without a rope. Not a good place to be.
1: Well, I'm smiling, but it wasn't funny at the time. No, it wasn't funny at all. Sure I wound up
3: in a Texas prison. How funny could it be?
1: And you were in prison for how long? A year. Was that the low point?
3: Yeah. I, you know, it's low point and high point. Uh, I wrote that judge who put me in that prison a thank you letter later on. And I said, I know that every day people show up in front of, of your court that you've seen before and that you've given a sentence to and he wasn't a a mean guy or anything. He was a guy trying to do a good job. And I said, this one time I wanted you to know it worked. I'm married. I'm working. I'm sober. I'm being tested sober. I'm going to AA. I'm happy. My life's working. The whole thing actually worked the way it was supposed to. And I just thought it might help you if you knew that every once in a while you win one.
1: If you hadn't gone to prison, if the judge hadn't sent you prison, do you think you'd be alive today?
3: No. I, I I can say that with almost absolute certainty. I would not have. So in
1: that sense, going to prison saved your life. I think it did. Let's talk about uh, your liver transplant. Uh, is public knowledge? Yeah. Very well known. Now, some people question whether the abuse of drugs and alcohol, whether anybody who does that, should be moved to the back of the liver transplant line.
3: I, You know, I can't be the one to define whether what the value system should be on that. I know that when they gave me the transplant, I was nine years sober. I know that they would not have given me the transplant if I weren't nine years sober. Saying that I didn't deserve it because I, you know, was responsible for giving myself the disease, I don't know if I'd agree with that. Because uh, I did learn and I did change and I did make the effort. Boy, is it an effort.
1: I'm a great believer you are what your record is. And your record shows that you did straighten up and you did become, did you ever, a productive member of society. What turned it around for you and when?
3: I think one of the biggest factors was my wife, Jan. You know, we went downhill together and when I gave myself up, I surrendered myself to the authorities and and willingly went to prison. She went into treatment. When I got out, we got together and, I think a lot of it was her support and her saying, let's go to a meeting and finding, you know, other things of value to put our time and effort into rather than trying to find more drugs.
1: You've been married how long?
3: Jeez. Uh, 36 years. And uh, I, I think we're incredibly lucky that we're still together because we, we would not, I would not be alive if she hadn't been there to help me through
1: in music, as in almost every other field, it's very difficult to sustain a career anywhere near as long as you and the others have been able to sustain your careers.
3: I, I can tell you why I think that is. Whether it's Crosby, Stills, and Nash with three writers or Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young with four writers, we had a wide palette, much wider palette to paint from than most bands would have. Mm-hmm. And all four of us can sing lead, all four of us can sing harmony, all four of us can play and I think the songs are the, really the the defining uh, uh, meat of the matter. Without songs that are about something and that make you feel something, if I can't sit down and sing you a song and make you feel something, I don't think I really have a song. And uh, I, I think that's been our strength. We've lasted 40 years. There has to be something, and it's certainly not our looks.
1: Well, you've never been uh, afraid, and indeed, you seem to have been eager from almost the very start to mix political activism with music. And to those who say, that's not the role of a musician, they should make their music, make good sound, and and," in quotation marks, I can get behind that, but when they start getting politically active, that's when I get off the bus, unquote. To them, you say what?
3: You know, there's an awful lot of people who feel that way. I remember when we played uh, in Atlanta the last time, last tour that we did with CSNY, and Neil had a song called uh, Let's Impeach the President for Lying, which the president most assuredly did do. A third of the audience walked out. And we're talking one of these big blimp hanger sized buildings, it was a lot of people. <laughs> I think that we have as much right to stand for what we believe in as you do, as you have, as you did, in a very exemplary fashion for many years. Compliment Thank you. Compliment. Intended. I think everybody does. I understand that we have more reach. We can spread word further than, than the guy driving the bus. But that doesn't deprive us of the right to stick up for what we believe in. I think it gives us a greater responsibility to, you know, express it carefully and in a prepared and in an intelligent, you know, way rather than just ranting rhetoric. But I, I think we have every right to. And I'm more than willing, as, as you have always been, to accept the responsibility and take the job seriously and try to make sure I get it right and do it right.
1: There must be voices, or tell me if they aren't, managers or promoters who say, listen, could you, could you stay away from that controversial stuff because we don't want a third of the audience walking out on us. It's bad for business.
3: Yes. There are and have been people who said that to us. They no longer manage us or are <laughs> our or, 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 or agents. Uh, the people who, that we work with understand who we are. They give us an interview like this instead of one where somebody says, well, what's your favorite color? Or do you date blondes? Uh, you're not going to ask me that. You're going to ask me things that will test me to come up with a cogent, you know, lucid answer.
1: Then I'm going to try to put you to the test. Please do. With your legendary musical past, really have reached icon level. That's a compliment to you, but it's one, not that I give you, it's one that you've earned. But at this age and stage, who are you and what are you?
3: grateful. I am a very grateful man. Uh, you come very close to death. It's a very educational experience. Uh, I came very close. And it, it teaches you to treasure what you've got. Every breath you take. Every, uh, well, I'm starting to quote sting. That's not good. Um, every bone you break. Uh it teaches you to treasure it, and, and I do. I'm, I am a very happy guy. I've had a tremendous amount of luck. I mean, according to the odds, I shouldn't be here. I have three fatal diseases, none of which they have a cure for.
1: And those are
3: not. Uh, hepatitis C, heart disease, I've got five stents in my heart, and uh, a diabetes, which is a, really a tough one. You know, it's a, a disease of paying attention, and paying attention is sort of an adult quality. I'm not sure I really still qualify as an adult. Still trying,
1: but... When you're not making music, what do you like to do? Uh, think up more music.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that the muse will come and visit you if you open the door. So I put a guitar in my hands every night I sit down at the piano, I sit with a pad, if I get three words in a row that I, that seem to have something to them, I write them down. I I spend a lot of time with my family, because it's a treasure, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way, Uh, and you know, I've always been a sailor, I've been a sailor since I was 11 years old, so I, I really do love that, I have an old Alden schooner, sailed it all around the world, and I, I, I really love doing that. I'm going to sail it to Hawaii again, I think.
1: Well, oh, that's a big sail to Hawaii. Yeah. Well, Again, I thank you very much for your time. It's been great. It's an honor to talk uh, to it's you. An man. It's an honor to talk to you, and I, I wish you many more years. You know, you're still pretty young by my standards.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I feel good. You know, I try very hard to stay alive. You know, I go to a gym, I work out, I read constantly. I'm still trying to grow. I would like to be learning something new and growing the day that I die. Will you you come come see
0: You're listening to Dan Rathers' The Big Interview. We'll be back with Crosby, Steels, and Nash. Welcome back to Dan Rathers' The Big Interview. Today's guests are Crosby, Steels, and Nash.
1: Stephen Stills is considered the musical heart of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. A virtuoso at a variety of instruments, he was named by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest guitarists of all time. He is also a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, penning such iconic tunes as For What It's Worth while part of Buffalo Springfield. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, about his then girlfriend, folk singer Judy Collins, and Love the One You're With, just to name a few. But the life of Stephen Stills has not been just about accolades, it's had its share of low notes as well. The end of
2: my enjoyment of my success happened on December 8th, uh, 1980. And I believe I poured myself into a bottle of whiskey for about ten years, and uh, pretty much missed the '80s. Uh, I mean, the John Lennon, the trauma of John Lennon being shot in such a ridiculous fashion just took took great deal of the pleasure out of it for me. And now the whole nation is armed. I I'm, I, think I'm, I think I'm well within a, a certain sense of uh, of uh, tranquility to remain, to keep to myself. I I. I just there are those that that really crave the spotlight, you know the besides you know other than just singing and playing. I like right. the stage, but the spotlight following them around and all this thing of the of this modern age it just it drives me to distraction. I'm not saying <laughs> Well, and,
1: and it's well known that you seldom do interviews and you don't particularly like to do interviews no
2: i i can g I can get downright rude. <laughs> Particularly when they, when the questions are, are so banal that that
1: it's just like, why
2: are we talking about this? Sex, drugs, rock and roll—it's such a cliche,
1: you know. Well, what question do you think should be asked that doesn't get asked very often? If what
2: motivates is? you, do you sense or do you think about overly the impact on society that these might have? Do you understand the difference between a clever tune and sloganeering? And I'd say we'd cross that line a few times, but I'm—I I don't want to be a propagandist. I—I I, that's why for what it's worth is so enigmatic. It—it doesn't—it uh, doesn't really come down on either side. It's about. Being mistreated by the police at home and it's also was a little message and a shout out to the boys over in the NAM who were trying to uh, just get through the day There's a man with a gun
1: for over what it's worth doesn't even use its title phrase in the lyrics the song is much more easily recognized by its catchy hook Written by stills while part of the short-lived rock group Buffalo Springfield, the song became an anthem of the 1960s and was quickly adopted as a protest song in the struggle for civil rights. What inspired you to write that?
2: I came up over a hill in Los Angeles and went down Laurel Canyon and they were having a funeral for a bar. Now this place. Had been just a little bungalow in the middle of a sort of triangular block, but it had, of course, spilled over into the thoroughfare. And about under LA, you know, uh, Los Angeles City ordinances, so is a public nuisance, you know, you're obstructing a public thoroughfare. It was a well, that's fu- what,
1: I want to get the picture here. This was a, a big party, if you will. Yeah, it was wasn't a, a protest movement, it was a
2: funeral for a bar. A funeral from, for a bar. Now, being from New Orleans, that's a very natural event. If There's a favorite watering hole, and it's about to close down, then everybody comes to say goodbye to it. And
1: that's what this was, but it yeah, was overflowing it was into the It's
2: called Pandora's Box, and, and it was a little place that would have, have live music. It used to be a house, so All there right. was... So
1: the funeral for the bar was spilling into the streets.
2: So the cops show up in battalion force.
1: And that's what prompted uh, the writing of For yeah. oh, What It's Worth.
2: Yeah, and although the first line is a man with a gun over there telling me I've got to beware. It's both those policemen and it's the VC over when you're on patrol in Rice Paddy.
1: Now, did you write this down in a notebook or a piece of paper, or are you just man, keeping your head? I,
2: I, I've i been fiddling with this thing, this line, for several days, and I looked at this, and first thing is my sense of security said, turn the car around and go the other way and uh you know because that's more trouble than we want any part of and the other reason for saying turn the car around is i wanted to get to a guitar right then because the thing was there and it took me no longer to write it than it took me to actually write the sentences on the paper it was writing itself on the way home
1: It's no secret uh, that that you suffer uh, hearing loss. Millions of people in this country, including myself, have uh, hearing loss at one stage or another. And I think it might be inspirational for those of us who do suffer hearing loss to hear you talk about it a bit. Well, the first thing I would say is that
2: contrary to popular uh, or convenient logic, that standing in front of that big old lamp fire is what done it. But actually, I remember... At least half of my relatives were, you know, from both sides of the family There was hearing loss and congenital hearing loss and damage in in, the, in within the family.
1: Also, you don't buy the idea that it's entirely know, because uh, of rock and roll and listening to such oh, loud no, music. My my
2: my hearing deficiency was discovered by Hear Socialized Medicine for Huey Pelong when he's governor of it. He got himself a trailer, and he put a doctor's office in it, and he sent it to every elementary school in the state of Louisiana, every parish. And it happened by mine when I was nine years old, and they said, you have a hearing loss, and it's going to get worse. It's right in the speaking range. When you were nine years old. Yeah. So I am now, it's going to get, I am am at the it's going to get worse part. As a matter of fact, well past the it's going to get, I'm profoundly deaf in this ear about, oh, I'd say, I've got about a 30% loss on this side.
1: Now, do you do you not worry that that may affect your ability to sing? After all, your voice depends greatly on your
2: well, ears. Well, only right? if you're working with bat ears, which is what I call David Crosby, because he will notice if I slip even a millimeter out of tune. Of course, I will, too, when I hear the recording later, but it doesn't appear to me now that I've got this nice vibrato that I, that I cover it up with. <laughs> uh, but it, what's really irritating to me now is that it's gotten so bad that I can, I've got to be in a pretty close, reflective room to be able to hear my acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing is that this is not specific to musicians. This is a nationwide thing because of just the noise of life in America, cars and trucks and and sirens and horns honking and trains and just you know all the whistle bells of modern day life um there is a general hearing loss that's becoming more and more pronounced and the equipment that they're building to address this malady is i would call it barbaric in its simplicity it's just a it's just a little bitty microphone with a couple of uh Amplifiers and, and, and it's woefully inadequate to the job because the human body can hear from anywhere from 25,000 cycles, which up where dogs can hear, all the way down to about 60. But the frequencies they actually harmonize with each other in order to produce a whole experience that's mm-hmm. neuro, neurological and physiological and also spiritual. That's what music does. Indeed. Well, you've written so many songs and great songs, but... I've written good songs. I've written some albatrosses, those things that just follow you around. And about the 1,000th performance, you realize how absurd it is. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you with. You want to slap yourself. And if you can't be with the one you love, honey, you love the one you, and you love the one you whip.
1: Stills picked up the phrase from fellow musician Billy Preston, who gave his blessing for Stills to use it. "Love the one you're with" was the most successful of Stills' solo career, and has become part of the Crosby, Stills, and Nash repertoire. Want to ask you about your colleagues for so long? At base, who is David Crosby? Uh, He is one of the most wonderful, and uh, and uh,
2: and just delightfully surreal people that i've met in my life and wonderfully articulate and only since i've lost my hearing and he grew that mustache and it's gotten all white i can't understand halfway what he says man he's very soft-spoken he's provided me with endless hours of i mean fall on the floor belly laughs
1: and how about your friend graham nash who is he
2: i do not consider myself you know, qualified to define, but uh, I would say that I learned an awful lot about craftsmanship and about attentiveness and about passion and about tenacity from him. And he's just a lovely, generous, wonderful, beautiful guy.
1: Uh, what a blessing, both of them. What a blessing indeed. We're near the end here. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you?
2: I can't think of a thing, I think you've done a marvelous job of, of discerning what, what we're about because it's not so much that we want, we're going to change the world, it's we want to convince everybody that it's possible. And we're about the joy of making a wonderful noise together.
0: You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Crosby, Steels and Nash. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guests are Crosby, Stills, and Nash.
1: The third voice in Crosby, Stills, and Nash is that of Graham Nash, whose path to American rock and roll stardom began in a small town in England.
4: American ladies
1: talk. Well, tell me, how does a, a British young man become part of a group that 's so synonymous with American culture American rock and roll music <laughs> when I
4: first heard Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers and Elvis and Fat Stomino and Jerry Lee Lewis, my life was over. I knew what I wanted to do. The Beatles were successful, of course, and they opened up giant, enormous doors that every single band wanted to run through. <laughs> You know, when they first had their hit record and, and conquered America, that's what we wanted to do.
1: Well, the Hollies were a tremendously successful British band. Uh, what was it like when you first played in the U.S.?
4: We thought that we were going to uh, do our 45 minutes of dynamite. You know, we, we, we got to the Paramount in uh, Times Square in New York City in Easter of 1965 on the Soupy Sales Easter show. And the uh, stage manager says, okay. What two songs are you doing? Two songs? We came all this way to do two songs? Yeah, but it's six, six times a day. And there's 12 other people on the same act, you know. So it was very strange. We had to let go. We thought we knew what we were doing in our English way. But when we came to America, we had to let go. I don't know whether you remember in Times Square there was that camel... Yeah. high up that blew smoke rings. That was fantastic to a kid from Manchester. I'd never seen anything like that in my life, right? A, a real hamburger? People that would deliver food to you? This was paradise. Oh, yeah. No, we, I knew where I wanted to be the moment I set foot in America. I, I, I climbed up the nearest palm tree when I went to Los Angeles, and I told Alan Clark I was never going back.
1: Alan Clark and Graham Nash were longtime childhood friends when they started The Hollies. Named after Buddy Holly, the group had a long string of hits on both sides of the Atlantic, including the 1966 single, Bus Stop. But eventually, Nash was ready to sing a different tune. Well, why did you leave? The music. I had heard me
4: and David and Stephen sing. It was completely a unique sound to me. We you know, the birds and the Buffalo Springfield and the Hollies were very decent harmony bands. But this was something different. When David and Stephen and I put our voices and blended them together before they hit the microphone, we knew that it was something very, very unique and very different. So it's the power of that vocal blend that we got to within forty seconds of singing with each other. Forty seconds. Incredible is that. Quick? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody sounds like us when we when we're on it. Nobody in the world.
1: Well, in your autobiography, you said the unique sound that we make is like the pull of gravity to the center of the earth.
4: Yes. That's how important music is to me. I think music is incredibly important in people's lives. That's why it saddens me that, you know, many school budgets, uh, uh, the first thing that they cut is the music program. You know, when it's proven that kids learn more, get into less trouble get into fewer gangs, you know, stay in school longer if there's music in the schools.
1: You're absolutely convinced that music is uh, an essential element of education.
4: And of communication between people, yes. Somebody asked me a question last night. I was doing a book signing. and And somebody said, would you have made more music? Or would you have made better music had you been straight all these years? Obviously, in my, in my autobiography, I go into great detail about our, our drug use because there's no denying what happened. You know, we were high for most of our lives at that point. Um, and so there's no real answer to that question because we'll never know.
1: When did the drug use start? Did you start with marijuana? Yes. And yes. And about when did that start?
4: For me, mid-'68, when I first came to Laurel Canyon. And uh, we had a a dear friend, Cass Elliot, who was the singer with the Mamas and Papas. Mm -hmm. And she was the woman that changed my life completely. She was the one that introduced me to Crosby, who would then, of course, introduce me to Stills, and then, of course, Neil. Cass Elliot was a very interesting, uh, person in in, in rock and roll. She was very much like Gertrude Stein. She would gather people together from different disciplines to talk about what's going on in their lives, how can can we make this better. She was a real uh, firecracker, Cass. And uh, had I not met her, my entire life would have been completely different.
1: So you say, you think mid-'68 is when you started smoking dope. You're right. And that led to harder stuff?
4: It led to to cocaine. I've never tried heroin. I don't ever want to. It doesn't make sense to me that you would be able to take a drug that could kill you instantly. I never thought that uh, we would die smoking dope. Mm-hmm. I never thought that we would die snorting cocaine, actually. Uh, one of the most disturbing parts of, of putting my life down in, in the book was was how how people would perceive Crosby. The only time I ever got a call from the legal department of the publishing was of, of a story I, I, I told about David, who uh, actually sold his Mercedes for for cocaine, and the dealer died. And David stole into the house while the dealer was still dead and stole his pink slip bat for the Mercedes and then resold the car for more cocaine.
1: Well, I can imagine that the book publisher's lawyers would be all over that.
4: They were all over that. But uh, I I told Crosby and I said, this is what I'm saying because that's what you told me happened. And he said, don't change a word. He admitted it. He was a man about, uh, you know, his
1: drug use. I'm thinking about how few people would have taken that attitude. It tells you a lot about David Crosby. It
4: tells you a lot about David, yeah. David Crosby is one of the most unique people I know, and I know a lot of people. He's an unbelievably unique, rare musician. He's very jazz influenced. Strange chords, strange tunings, things I, I personally, would, as a writer, would never think of, you know? He's a very smart man, David Crosby. And at a point in my life when I was leaving the Hollies and they were allowing me to doubt myself as an artist, that maybe I'm not as good as I think I am or I don't know what I'm doing, or, you know, that kind of strange thing that keeps you awake at night. Uh, when they, when I was going through that with the Hollies, it was Crosby that was saying, no, 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 Marrakesh Express? No, 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 that's a good song. No, no, come on, come over here, come on, let's go. You know, so he, he regave, he gave back, my faith in myself, and that's invaluable. What is the price of that?
1: Stephen Stills, who is he?
4: Stephen Stills is a leader. Stephen Stills is a tremendous, tremendous musician, a great arranger, stubborn, um, won't quit until he thinks it's right, which I love about him. And
1: what about Neil Young?
4: Neil Young is, as I said in my book, he's one of the strangest friends I have completely dedicated to the muse of music, completely a slave to good music. Um, Neil Young, dedicated to his family, dedicated to making the world a better place, and also trying to uh, bring out a a, a small player that plays high-res sounds instead of MP3s and, you know, silly things like that. Neil's in a good place.
1: Well, that brings us to question, who and what are you?
4: There's a part of me that is still waiting to get found out. I'm 71 years old now. I've been doing this successfully a long time. But there's a part of my soul that doesn't quite believe that I should be here. You know, I'm this poor kid from the north of England who had the wisdom to follow his parents' advice about following his heart in my passion for music. Um, Who am I? I want to get the job done. If we're going to commit to doing a tour or commit to doing an album or commit to singing a note, I want to get the job done the best way we can. I personally think that time and our family are all we have. When my father died at 46 and the clouds didn't stop scurrying across the sky and the birds didn't stop singing, and I I realized, my God, you have to fill your life with the best you can for every second of your life. I'll never make it 100%, but I'm certainly trying to have the best life I can, because why not?
1: Well, why not? I like the question. Yeah. You and the others, how have you and the others managed to sustain this success over such a long period of time?
4: The music that we make and that we create and that we're able to touch people's hearts with, is the most important part of our relationship none of the other stuff that's gone on in our lives all the backstabbing all the it's meaningless the older we get the more that we try and concentrate on our strengths and not our weaknesses
1: well you've written some very memorable songs we won't go through the whole list but uh, our house teacher children chicago wasted on the way what are some of the stories behind these songs
4: there's a story behind every single one of them. And, and what I like to do is celebrate the ordinary moments in life. And I'll give you an example. I took Joni Mitchell to breakfast once in Los Angeles. We left the restaurant, we pass an antique store. She looks in the window, she sees a beautiful vase in the window that she wants to buy. Now, I mean, I know I haven't been with Joan for you know, over 40 years, but she probably still has her, her first dollar. She doesn't spend a lot of money on herself, but she did buy this vase. And so we went back to her uh, house in Laurel Canyon, where we were living, and I said, you know something? I'll light a fire. Why don't you put some flowers in that vase that you just... And all of a sudden... I'll light the
1: fire you
4: place the flowers in the vase that you bought that incredibly ordinary moment that you and i as men have experienced a thousand times Mm -hmm. you know okay love you do that and i'll do this and then tea will, you know dinner will happen and the kids will be fine you know that's a perfect example because when Joni was in the garden trying to find flowers for the vase she wasn't at her piano Mm -hmm. which means i was and our house was written incredibly quickly
1: What an interesting concept about writing. You so say you like to write about the ordinary moment.
4: My life is made up of ordinary moments.
1: Well, most everybody's life is. Indeed. And that's the point. But as I listen to you, I'm reminded, and you're very much aware of this, that there are a number of people who say, listen, I love Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They're a great musicians, I love it. But I hate it when they start talking, quote, politics. How do you feel about that? I can't
4: separate my music from my politics. And I'm not so sure that politics is the right title. When you shoot four kids down at Kent Strait because of their
1: constitutional
4: right to protest what their government is doing in their name, and you kill them, is that politics or is that humanity?
1: The guardsmen have fired 61 shots. Four students are dead. Neil Young wrote the powerful Ohio in 1970 after seeing the iconic photographs of Vietnam War protesters shot dead by National Guardsmen on the Kent State campus. The song captured the mood of a divided nation and quickly became a sharp rallying cry against the war. Is that on your list of most important songs you've been associated with or not?
4: Yes. Very much so. It was such a wound in the national soul. We're killing our own children. Something's terribly wrong here. We had a single of teacher children going up the charts. It was in the top 20 going to the top five. We killed our own single because we thought that Ohio was more important to talk about than having a hit single.
1: What question have I not asked you I should have asked you?
4: How am I feeling?
1: Well, how are you feeling? Fantastic.
4: Be gone, I'm tired of you.
1: What have you got to do? Few bands have been launched with the fanfare of Crosby Stills and Nash. Woodstock was their coming out party. They even recorded a song penned by Joni Mitchell, about the famed music festival. For many, it became the definitive song of a legendary weekend. As I was preparing for this interview and talking to someone, this was a person roughly my age. Keep in mind, I'm now 82 years old. I said, I'm going out to talk to Crosby Stills at night. he said, oh, those hippie guys. (laughs) Well, now, going back to the beginning... Were you hippies? Absolutely.
4: Yeah. I was <laughs> yeah. We were. I, I, I'll admit it. Absolutely. But, you know, those, those hippie ideals, you know, the so-called hippie ideals still remain true to this day. That love is better than hatred. That peace is better than war. That maybe we should take care of each other, like be our brother's keeper. Maybe we should uh, take care of our environment. You know, those hippie ideals are still incredibly important today. So I'll admit to being a hippie, and I still am.
3: I think we started out even before that with you know Kerouac and and the Beats, uh, that that generation of of thinking influenced us and and I think gave birth to the hippies.
1: Did you read Jack Kerouac? Oh yeah. Did you read him, Stephen?
2: Yeah, I was. I, I read him when I was in the French Quarter. He and um, Allen so Ginsberg. Bohemian is pretty pretty much the way I describe it. The hippies are an extension of the Bohemians.
1: Well, I'm a journalist. Obviously. And I'm always interested in getting this story straight. Can we settle on how Crosby, Stills, and Nash started? No, no. there's no agreement. No. Well, let's start. Let's Fair start this way. Let's start with you. What, what's your version of how it all started?
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know how the the mind memory works, and there are some events that impact you so extremely, that you have a cinem- cinematographic, smellophonic, you know, absolutely high-definition picture memory. And I remember looking past Cass Elliott and this guy. He was standing over here. Cass was standing at her door, Graham. looking past at, at him. And saying, oh, my God, it's Graham Nash from the other night. And that's the, day that I, that's the day that I think that we first sang at her dining room table.
1: Now, Grandma, does that match your memory?
4: Absolutely not.
1: No. Well, what's your version of this?
4: My version is that I came from London to visit Joni in Los Angeles. Joni Mitchell. Went to her house. David and Stephen were there at dinner. Uh, That's when we first sang together. And Stephen is correct in that it was such an incredibly profound musical moment in all of our lives that we will never forget the first time. But. On my autobiography that we were talking about earlier, the last sentence is, this is how I remember it, because we all have our truths. Obviously, Stephen and David and I completely disagree about when we first sang together, but that's
1: the fragility of the human spirit. We all have our own truths. So, David, now, what's your version of where it all came together? What he said. You agree with Graham?
3: Yeah. Oh, there's no question about it. I, I remember it distinctly.
1: Well, there is some question, because Stephen because has I different Because
2: mim- I absolutely remember this as vividly as as this moment, that we're sitting here as vividly as where I was when Jack Kennedy was killed, because that's how special the music was. It was a Rosewood dining table in Cass Elliot's kitchen. And uh, and there, two days later, we went to Joni's, where she lived in a, Lovely little bungalow on uh, Wonderland Avenue, and we sang, uh, we sang around her table with la- ladderback back chairs. Well, so afraid. I remember both ex- instances. I just did
3: those, you know, like I'll I give said. You the an example everyone... of his memory. He thinks it was Wonderland. It was Lookout Mountain Drive.
1: So Well, in my story, I guess what I'm going to have to say is there are differences of opinion yes. as to when and how the first meeting happened.
3: But we all knew that it was good, and that's the main thing.
1: That is the main thing. So let's concentrate on that for the moment. For the moment, set aside where it happened, whether it happened in uh, Mama Cass's place or Joni Mitchell's place. What happened, Stephen? Uh, He
2: says he did, but I said, Cassidy, why don't you and David sing those things that you've been working on? So we went to the table, and I picked a corner so that I could really hear the two of them. David sat. On this side and the other side, he roamed around and listened to us sing uh, this very simple song that has one verse, twice, three times.
1: And the song was? In the morning when you rise.
4: In the morning when you
1: rise. The official title of the song was You Don't Have to Cry. The lush harmony became the signature sound for their landmark debut album.
3: It was a startling moment. Graham we sang it to him he said would you do that again and we looked at each other and thought oh, okay so we sang it again he, he said one, one more, more time, time. <laughs> and we sang it and he put the top part on and that was I knew at that moment what I was going to be doing with my life for quite some time In the morning,
2: when you ride,
3: it was like a horse
2: with three heads and Galloping on the four legs of my finger pig.
1: Did you know at that moment what you were going to be doing the rest of? I your knew own?
2: that I'd never heard a, a vocal group sound like that ever. I mean, is it the Celtic Keen of his voice, his cat's purr, and my cement truck or whatever it is, uh, just had this blend that uh That's was, blend and mesh that was we could do anything.
4: It was absolutely, completely a unique sound. It was one voice made up of three individual strains of voice. There was no doubt we knew what we had. We were in love with each other, That's we were true. in love with the music. We were in love with each other's songs. We couldn't wait to get out there. Get out of our way, we're coming forward. We were unstoppable. There. So much love to make make up love. everywhere you turn.
1: So now you come together. Now you're Crosby, Stills, and Knights. Nice. What happened after that? You realize you've had this incredible moment.
2: We've kept it very much to ourselves for, for quite some time of trying to navigate all the very delicate business negotiations to get releases and things like that. We run three separate record companies. Yes. And so we had to, we had to play this, this whole little game. The minute that we got that done, we went into a very quiet studio and did not tell anybody because one of the most disruptive influences on recording sessions is an entourage showing up. So we went into the studio very quietly and we had sung these songs to death. And it was just, it just happened like that.
3: You have to understand that Stephen played just about everything on that first record, except the drums, he played lead, he played acoustic, he played bass, and he played three uh,
4: piano. Yeah, I mean, yeah, me and piano. I played our, our guitars on you know Long Time Gone and Guinevere and Lady of the Island and you know stuff like that. But Stephen played most of the instruments. So th- when we had created this album, when we realized we we're going to have to go out and play live, what do we do with the man that played all the instruments? We, it, can't, it doesn't work. So, so what we did, did you do?
3: We turned to a member of his former group, uh, Neil, I and met. and I think there was a lot of question in our minds whether or not we wanted Neil in the band.
1: And well, I remember was there a question in his mind whether Neil Young wanted to be in the band?
3: Yeah, there was. But yeah. but he knew what we had too. Neil's brilliant. I uh, I came to my decision point about it. I was sitting in the driveway of that same house, uh, Joni's house on, on Lookout, and I Neil drove by. And he saw me sitting there. And he turned around, came back down, pulled in, pulled out a guitar, sat on the, we sat on the trunk of the car, and he sang me, oh, I don't know, four of the best songs I'd ever heard in a row. And I said, oh yeah, I
4: want this guy in the band. Well, I'd never met Neil Young. I didn't know whether we could be friends. I didn't know whether I could tell him secrets. I didn't know whether we could hang. I had never met him. So I said to David and Stephen, look, before we make this incredible decision, I have to meet this Neil Young guy. Mm -hmm. I went to breakfast with Neil on Bleecker Street in in the village, and after that breakfast, I would have made him king of the world. He was so funny. He was so self-assured. He was so certain that what he could bring Especially his ability to play guitar in and against Stephen would be brilliant. Neil is you know a
3: very unusual human being. He will do what he thinks is going to produce the best music. If he believes that it's time for the four of us to play, then he will he will come to that party and he will make that happen it when we started this, just to make one thing clear, we planned. The reason we used our own names instead of calling ourselves the Jetsons or Led Zeppelin or you know the giant banana centipede uh, we use our own names because we intended to be able to work in any combination and all of us had in mind doing solo stuff all of us Graham and I have always had a special relationship we always intended to do Crosby Nash and it's been a, a gift from God it's been so good
1: well if someone arrived and didn't know Uh, anything about your past, anything about your music, and said, uh, what is your music about? How would you answer that question?
4: Humanity. Feelings. Love. Love. Friendship. Loyalty. Support. Justice. Less crazy. Less lonely. Maybe, Maybe challenge you to think a little differently about things.
3: Diminishing the space between human beings. It's about here. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> a musicians joke, yes okay.
1: How is it that so many people perceive you As in the mainstream of music But way out there when it comes to politics That's a very good question I
4: think that we've had the courage To talk about subjects that A lot of people don't agree with We recognize their right not to agree with us uh, But we live in the United States of America And we can speak our minds And no one has to listen At all But we get a chance to speak our minds. That's why I became an American citizen 30-odd years ago. I didn't want to be throwing hand grenades into this society without being a part of it. I wanted to vote. I wanted to elect people to represent me. I wanted the ideals of the American dream. And I'm still following it. And I think it's still attainable. And it looks grim out there. I know how depressing it looks. When you start to think about global warming and the deniers and you think about Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia and you think about all the pirates and you think about what's going on and you think about giant icebergs breaking off in the middle of the Arctic and coming into the shipping maze, it looks crazy out there. But we've got to keep hold of the fact that this is an incredible country and we can make it better.
1: Well, I think we can all say amen to that. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank
4: you, Dan. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you you so
1: much. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it, friend. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv.
0: And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.